For this episode, I spoke with Ben Cloutier, Carissa McGee, and Daniel Rowan. Ben is the Director of Communications for Project ECHO, Carissa is the Program Manager for the Peer Education Project, and Daniel is the Senior Program Manager for the Peer Education Project. We talked about how the Peer Education Project is impacting lives in and outside of the prison system and giving people tools they need to succeed in their lives beyond incarceration. They each shared inspiring stories from their own journeys, and it was a pleasure learning about this program and the important work they're doing. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So could each of you briefly introduce yourselves and describe your roles in the Peer Education Project? Sure, I'll go first. Um, uh, my name is Carissa McGee. I am the program manager for the Community Peer Education Project. And uh, mainly my role is to oversee the, the project's operations, uh, making sure that our, we're fully staffed, that we're meeting our objectives and deliverables with our partners, and ensuring that um, all communications uh, across the, the board is, is being distributed. So that's mainly what I do. And I, uh, so doing that, I support the contractors that we have on the team. So I oversee um, all of the employees. All right. So uh, yeah, my name is Daniel Rowan. I'm the senior program manager. Uh, so I oversee both our prison peer education project and the community peer education project. And I would say one of my larger roles would be overseeing and supporting and maintaining relationships on multiple levels, whether it's uh, with uh, a number of the community peers that uh, Carissa oversees, but our internal ECHO team uh, between both the prison side and the community side, and then also maintaining relationships with um, stakeholders within uh, corrections and within the prisons themselves. Uh, with unit managers and uh, wardens and things like that. And also overseeing, uh, I guess, uh, you know, we use the ECHO model to support our community peers and we use the ECHO model to uh, support our prison peer educators. And so overseeing really the, the development of curriculum and the direction for topics that, that we take um, each quarter. And since I've been on the show before, Lucas, you know me, but um, I'm Ben Cloutier and I'm the communications and marketing director for ECHO and I support these guys in helping reach the community and the people that we need to serve. Awesome. Thanks so much. And I don't know if this is better geared for you, Carissa or Daniel, but could you briefly describe the peer education project and how it came to be? So, uh, you know, it really began with, uh, I would say, hepatitis C treatment, and that Dr. Carla Thornton was working with the corrections department to train their medical providers so that they could provide hepatitis C treatment within the prison system. And it was during this time that Dr. Thornton was coming across acute cases of hepatitis C, and she was curious if there was education happening uh, in the prisons on hepatitis C. And the education that was happening was not consistent uh, within the prison. And so she wanted to do something about that. 
And she went looking really for a program that could take uh, education, health education into the prison. She found a program in Texas called Wall Talk that was, uh, it was a peer-based, peer education-based program that had been developed, I believe it was by SAMHSA, it was in the public space, but it had been developed to address uh, HIV. Texas had uh, some issues with HIV outbreaks. Uh, so she really, uh, the, her and the, the team at that time took that curriculum and reformatted it to address the problem in New Mexico, uh, which is hepatitis C. And then we started in one prison uh, here in New Mexico, trained a group of uh, 10 or 15 folks who are incarcerated to be pure health educators. And so that that was the start. That was over 10 years ago. Um, so we are actually in all of the prisons now. We're in all 11 of the prisons. Uh, we, we have the program in the level two and the level threes here uh, here in the state. Daniel, can you maybe say more too about how the ECHO model is working with the peer education? Oh, yes. The ECHO model, which has been really critical through the pandemic, but also just critical because this, the prisons in New Mexico, you know, the farthest northeast, there's a prison in Clayton, and then the farthest prison down south, there's one uh, in Hobbs, you know, and so the prisons are scattered across the entire state. It's a large area. And so there would really be no way to support the peer educators all the time if it wasn't for the ECHO model. So twice a month, we come together uh, using Zoom and follow the ECHO model where we really leverage technology and we work together uh, through case-based learning to develop best practices for the program. And, uh, you know, I'd like to say that, you know, we're able to bring ex ex topic experts, you know, to present uh, on a whole host of things. Uh, maybe it's on hepatitis C, maybe it's on other health issues, but we've also brought in experts to talk about mental health, um, other issues like that. And so we really are kind of leveraging a, a scarce resource in prison because expert expertise like that is short in prison, but it's kind of a two-way street uh, because the peer educators themselves are experts in their own right and that they're experts in their own lives. They're experts in their own surroundings. And so they can really help guide how we do how we do the program. And there's been a number of times that the health experts that come on to present the facts about different diseases and topics are able to learn from our peer educators. Thanks for that. And just a general question. So if if an inmate um, thinks that he or she may have a health condition, um, where do they go from there typically? Do they let the CO know and who takes care of them? Are those contracted um, physicians or providers? And could you kind of talk a little bit more about that system of getting care, not just the um, knowledge and expertise? Sure. And I can speak from a, a the male perspective. It's pretty similar, male, female in New Mexico. Uh, but really, the, you know, the corrections department has a contracted medical provider 
and what how that translates to somebody being sick in the prison is to you know depending on the situation um the typical mode is to fill out a, a request a medical request uh, so just putting your personal information and what the problem is and you submit that uh to medical and they'll set up an appointment for you if it was some sort of medical emergency or something like that, that's where you get into uh, letting an officer know. Uh, for for example, I, I knew someone that decided to refuse their antibiotics after they got a tooth pulled. And then the next day their face was, I mean, really swollen and huge. And so he went to the officer and let them know what was going on. And they kind of whisked him off to take care of that. And are there any challenges uh, to prison populations to receiving health care or quality health care that people who aren't incarcerated might not encounter or even think of? What really sticks out from my experience is just knowing that the, the stigma that comes from being in such an enclosed population when folks, when the women needed to, um, for example, maybe they were exposed to HIV and they were scared about um, you know, going to medical because the likelihood of that being, you know, found out, somebody seeing them, um, and then that, you know, them being stigmatized for it, uh, that that's a big barrier. We don't have a way of, uh, you know, in the incarcerated world, you can't really do things secretly. It's, you know, you have to be trying, you know, uh, movement is, is seen. People can walk past these units uh, often, um, and, and witness those kind of things. So there's no type of privacy when it comes to um, going to medical and getting your issues addressed. Uh, so I know that that was, a, and that's a big barrier for the women, especially because, you know, we have, um, we, we just carry a lot of, um, what's the word? I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it right now, but there's a lot of just pressure of, of women having a certain image of being healthy, of taking care of themselves. Um, and so I know that they, they struggled with that. And then also just, it really goes down to the education. We, you know, incarcerated populations don't have access to the internet. They can't have uh, ways to go and verify and check up on things that they might've heard about, rumors that they might've heard, uh, or just wanting to go and do some additional, you know, exploration on things. And so lack of, you know, the access to exploring their own, um, you know, ways of understanding what's going on with them is a barrier that, you know, is often faced. But I think that's kind of one that's right on the nose. You can kind of anticipate. So I don't know if that's really insightful for it, but. Chris or Daniel, I guess I'm wondering too, is there, um, is there more to say about how, you know, HCV and especially, or some of these other um, conditions are being transmitted really in the, in the prisons and why that's such a big problem in the prisons specifically? Well, really, you know, people have a lot of time on their hands and probably the most common way that people get hepatitis C, uh, I'm going to say is through tattooing, um, through, through the tattooing equipment. And so tattooing is, you know, it's a part of prison culture, you know, go to prison, get a tattoo. That's, uh, you know, you go to amusement park, maybe you get a t-shirt or you go to prison, you get, <laughs> you get a tattoo, um, and there are some really incredible tattoo artists in there, frankly, but of course, everything's kind of homemade. So the needles are homemade, uh, the ink barrels, the ink itself, uh, everything's homemade. 
And so there's not uh, the opportunity to use sterile, clean equipment would be, that, that's the most common one. And then the access to care, it, it's interesting because some of the problems that people face incarcerated are similar to in here. So some facilities are short staffed, short on medical staff and have long waiting lists. So hard to hard to be seen or harder to be seen. You have to wait a long time. And I think so for some people that can be kind of frustrating. I know out here it's frustrating for me <laughs> when you try to make a doctor's appointment and they can't see you for like two months or something. But in there, it's frustrating for people uh, as well. And but then sometimes, depending on the the medical in the facility, there's sometimes especially the men, they will relate the medical with the established uh, administration and security. So in their mind, it's kind of one and the same. And so they would just prefer to just not go uh, as much as they can because they feel like it's people just kind of intruding into their lives or they, they have their routine and they would just rather not have to deal with administration, if that makes sense. What percentage of the population in New Mexico prisons is uh, hep, hep C positive? Oh, yeah. So currently we're upon entry. It's it's right around 50 percent test reactive for the hepatitis C antibodies. And what about uh, the percentage of people who leave prison? Is it higher? So we don't know that yet. They just recently started doing uh, some exit testing. However, I, I have not seen any outcomes from that. I don't know. They haven't really been doing it. They haven't even been doing it for a year, as far as I know. So it'll probably take a little bit of time. And I don't know how effective they're being at getting everybody, frankly, uh, because people's what's called a PR day, PRD, projected release date, uh, You people have those, and then they get out a week earlier or two weeks earlier because they, they recalculate it. And so people's dates of release are always changing. And I just, I suspect that that's going to interfere with being able to get everybody tested on the way out the door. But we'll see. We'll see. Gotcha. And one of the things you said that I found pretty interesting was that uh, some of the barriers to care um, to prisoners are actually similar to that that we see in people in New Mexico as a whole. And one of those I see in people in New Mexico is that, so even if you have healthcare, then you're typically boxed into an insurance network and you can only see physicians uh, that are in that network if you want your care to be paid for. Do inmates have any control over who they see uh, as a provider? No, uh, technically speaking, each facility will have a doctor and then nurse practitioners and nurses and things like that. But really who you see just depends on who's working that shift that day. I guess it, potentially if you had a problem with that person, you potentially could put a grievance in and see a different nurse rather than that one. But uh, so it's just kind of who's there that day. So you don't really have a choice. So if you end up with a bad provider or you know, someone that doesn't like the population that they're working with, which it happens, um, then that's who you're stuck seeing. Right. And it, it sounds like a lot of the medical care there is uh, 
sort of akin to primary care on the outside. How do inmates go about getting specialty care? Um, and does ECHO play a role in that at all in um, giving physicians who are working with that population the information that they would need to treat more specific diseases? As far as specialty care goes, the only role that ECHO plays would be in the treatment of hepatitis C. Uh, all, all the other more um, specialized diseases that people may have, I, I'm actually I'm unfamiliar uh, exactly with how they would do that uh, in the prison. Krista, do you know on that one? No, that's my understanding as well. Hepatitis C is what we've been... Um, it's actually what started our connection to um, NMPEP to even have an educational component was because we were providing HCV treatment and Dr. Thornton realized that we need to move a little bit more upstream and the educational piece came from it. But outside of that specialty area, I don't, I'm not familiar. The, the one thing I can say that I do know is that there are situations where inmates are taken off of the prison yard and taken to actual hospitals. Okay. And Carissa, maybe you can answer this one. Uh, one thing you guys touched on was that uh, there are peer educators in prison, and then they kind of dispense more information to other inmates that choose to join. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the skills and abilities that those people get in training that kind of helps them once they're out of prison, adapt to life on the outside, and um, maybe get a job? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that we actually highlight in our 40-hour training is just the, the concept that we have, uh, that we present and provide them with uh, tools that are transferable um, and that they just last a lifetime. Uh, it's not, you know, the skills that we train on are definitely not um, contingent upon, you know, prison walls to be effective. And, and that's, that's really um, kind of a silver lining amongst everything that we're doing because these skills are really what help me be, a, be as successful as I am in my transition uh, back to the community. And just starting with one of the most obvious ones that we have is just taking their lived experience and teaching them how to articulate it in a way uh, to be, you know, lessons for other people, drawing out what, what worked for them. And, and we do that through a model of, adult learning theory. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Aristotle's rhetoric, but he, he teaches and talks about the art of persuasion, um, introducing ethos, pathos, and logos uh, to the women and to the men that we train so that they understand that, you know, appealing to the credibility, appealing to somebody's emotion, and then doing it in a logical manner uh, is the best method of communication that, you know, we could really all be utilizing. So we, we train on the first day. That's what we're really trying to demonstrate with these uh, individuals is how to effectively communicate their stories, their lived experiences in a way that's impactful, um, that actually draws benefit and uh, really helps people, you know, head in a, in a better, more productive manner. And we also touch upon, you know, practical skills like motivational interviewing. Um, uh, introducing stages of change so that they can understand where an individual might be in their path um, and then helping them to meet them there, giving them tools on, on how to help somebody get from maybe the contemplating stage into the preparing stage um, using some of those motivational interviewing techniques and, and really drawing this principle that we, we kind of wove into all of, all of the topics that we talk about is 
teaching to the heart and allowing the mind to follow. Because we know if we can touch somebody's heart, they're more likely to, um, you know, in their own mind, start to see themselves doing these things, believing in themselves, increasing their efficacy uh, by believing that they can actually do these things. And we we demonstrate that mostly uh, all these skills and all these tools they're great for anybody, but you could pick up a book and read these things, you know, and and go in and read in the literature, uh, just the impacts that that these things have. I think what really makes, um, you know, the training uh, resonate with our audience is the fact that it's coming from peers, um, knowing that Daniel, myself, um, another individual, Barry, who was with us a long time ago, we, you know, we go back into the prison um, and, and we're demonstrating to them that what we're giving to you is real, it's tangible, it's, you know, it's applicable, it's relevant. And then we let them see in our own selves, in our own lives, in our own demeanor, the outcomes that could come once you embrace these philosophies and these principles. Um, I think that we're breathing examples of Aristotle's rhetoric, that once you adapt these things and really like take grip of them, um, they are life transforming, uh, transforming. And so, and we're able to demonstrate that now because we're peers out in the community. So we were once, you know, trained as former, as peer educators inside the prison, took these principles, applied them to us, you know, as we transitioned out into the community, lo and behold, you know, we have full-time employment, we have retirement, we have, you know, benefits, we have all these things. And we're able to, to demonstrate that because, we, we just took the tools and used them even out here in the community and they work. Thanks so much for sharing that. And it really seems like you and Daniel are massive success stories and a real testament to how well this program works. Are you seeing that other people find success like you? And can you share maybe some other success stories from people who have gone through this program and found um, happy, productive, fulfilling lives on the outside? I'll I'll share a couple and then you can fill in a couple more, Carissa. But uh, one you know what one of the things in the the training and another one of our principles is community plus service uh, equals purpose. And I, I think one of the greatest tragedies of just prison in general is it places individuals in a situation of of survival where they have to think about their self themselves constantly. Uh, whether it's getting my getting food, getting uh, getting your mail, getting your medical, it's uh, it's kind of like you're struggling to get all of these things. And so, what what I saw when I was in prison, and what I discovered within myself, is that uh, when I think about other people, and when I try to be of service, I discover something new about myself, and something even new about life in general. And in that process, you know, I discovered that purpose when I am of service within my community, whether that's in prison or out here. And I also learned to speak through the project. I, I was not interested in public speaking, but through peer education, I did learn how to do it with Aristotle's rhetoric. And I applied those skills and was able to co-found an organization in Albuquerque, Best Chance, which now employs uh, several former peer educators. One of them, uh, his name is Gary. He's actually managing one of the programs uh, over there. But he, I, I still remember his 40-hour uh, training 
And uh, he says today that he never thought that he would be able to get out of prison and go on to help people. And then he never thought he'd be able to help people while he was in prison. And uh, he had somebody, I, I can't remember if it was a district attorney that told him this, but somebody told him that you'll be lucky to be a greeter at Walmart when you get out. And so now he's in a position where he can be of service and is he's using all the tools that he learned in peer education in the prison uh, on the outside. Uh, and Chris, I mentioned another gentleman, Barry Orr, who also uh, worked at Best Chance and, um, but he has, you know, he's gone on, he went to college and got his master's degree and is a program uh, uh, director of a, of a rehab in a rural New Mexico town, Gallup, yeah, Gallup. And those are just a couple, you know, we have a whole team of formerly incarcerated peer educators who provide peer support to men and women on supervision, and they're contracted and paid uh, to do that. And uh, there's another, uh, Stacy is another one, but I'll let you talk about Stacy, maybe a little bit, Chris, if you want to mention her. I find it so funny that the two people that you think about, Daniel, are two males, and I thought about two women right off the bat. So, I mean, it is, it's really nice. Our team is, some of the success that we can show is just that it is um, extremely diverse. Uh, so that's, that's one of the things. And some of the success stories are actually diverse as well. We're talking about employment, meaningful employment, which is a big it's actually the number one concern that a lot of um, individuals who have experienced incarceration have to face. So we do have a lot of uh, pride in the success that comes from people finding that employment aspect, uh, especially after being uh, trained as a peer educator. But the success story that actually jumped to my head was this woman that I did time with, her name is Cece, and she uh, was incarcerated and separated from her children, which was a heavy, heavy burden that she carried with her through an entire incarceration. And I remember, you know, several, several instances where she would just talk about the dream of being, you know, back with her children and wanting to be a mother that, you know, that they could look up to, that she was proud to be, that she could be a provider for them. Um, and, you know, she spent significant time um, incarcerated. And upon her release, and she was trained as a former peer as well. She was a peer educator while she did. And upon her release, uh, she transitioned out to the state. So I lost contact with her. But it was just recently, um, it was about six months ago, I actually got a phone call from Cece. And she was just able to share with me how her dreams were able to come to reality. Um, that she was able to come back out to the community uh, secure a job, was able to use her training as a peer educator to, you know, secure the employment, which was great, but that actually put her in a position to provide for her children, to get back in their lives and to be a positive role model for them um, and, and to have something um, to demonstrate, you know, of her incarceration, that that time wasn't in vain, that she, she gained something from that incarceration. And while she had lost so much from it, she was at least able to come back a better woman um, with purpose, with drive and with clear intentions. And, you know, now she's a proud mother, her children are with her and, you know, things are starting to just really pan out for her in the best kind of ways. And that's something that peer education is able to do. We give these transferable skills 
uh, to, to be a better person, not, not to be a better employer or employee, not to, you know, come out and have, you know, just incredible health. We want that, but it's just in general, we want them to be happier, more wholesome people, individuals, um, contributing back into their communities in their own light, in their own respect. So I think that's important to highlight that we're able to give these kind of skills um, just across the board. And, you know, Daniel mentioned this, this individual, Stacy. she was somebody else I did some time with and was a trained peer as well. And when she came out to the community, she realized that, you know, there was gaps for the women specifically on transitioning out and being successful in their re-entry. Um, and she faced many of those, you know, she experienced a lot of those gaps herself. And upon her uh, successful completion of supervision, her number one goal was to turn around and find a way to fill those gaps for the women um, who were following in her footsteps. And so um, back in 2020, actually, her and I teamed up together uh, to put together a nonprofit called Women in Leadership. We're actually partnered with Project Echo, um, and we're providing the same kind of services that we received inside the prisons where, you know, we, we meet people where they're at, we hear them out, we give them tools to equip them, but most importantly, we give them hope. Uh, by being examples for them. And she's the executive director of Women in Leadership. It has taken off in ways that we could never have imagined. Um, and really, it all started back during our incarceration when we were first introduced to the New Mexico Peer Education Project. Thank you both for sharing those stories. They're really inspiring. One thing I think about when I think about this topic is that a lot of people might have misconceptions about prison or people who were formerly incarcerated. Do either of you want to talk a little bit about some of those common misconceptions and address them? Absolutely. I take extreme pleasure in being the face of a violent offender. And that is only because I am not what most people would ever assume or anticipate. And that is because a lot of these conceptions of, you know, what it is to be a felon and on top of that, a violent offender, it's usually tattoos on the neck and, you know, maybe even a shaved head or just this like scowl that's permanently put on your face. Um, you're, you're not going to be as poised. You couldn't articulate yourself uneducated that this is just the stigma that comes across. And I just absolutely love being the one to, um, just showcase and demonstrate that we are human first and foremost, and we've made some poor decisions in our past. We'll absolutely own that, but that doesn't strip us from the ability to uh, be inspirational or, or um, educated, intelligent, and, you know, present ourselves with class. Um, and so, you know, that is one conception that I love being able to tear down is that we don't fit the mold of somebody who's been through the system simply by appearances. Um, and if we can be fair, that's that's stilling away from the people who actually enjoy tattoos. Many, many people have tattoos who have never been incarcerated a day in their life. And they have this you know, stigma placed upon them of incarceration experience. And that is not at all true nor, nor fair. Um, and so, I mean, that's just some of the things that I face. And I take pleasure in being able to, to debunk that myth. But I'll let Daniel share some of his input, too. Yeah, I, I, well, I think, you know, Chris's story just really highlights the importance of knowing people's character and that many people have things in their background and mistakes. I, I think there's not a human being that's ever lived that doesn't 
have some mistakes in their past uh, that they regret. Just, you know, some mistakes will uh, lead you to prison and some won't. But, I, you know, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, my mom self-admittedly lived a pretty sheltered life. I think she said she had one glass of champagne or something like that in college. Uh, or, and anyway, so I, I introduced her to a whole another world. <laughs> uh, bless her heart for putting up with me. But, um, you know, she had some conceptions of what prison was going to be like and what people in prison uh, were going to be like until she started coming to visit me. Uh, and I remember having a conversation about this with her. And the, the one thing that she said, she's, she had said, you know, I'm just surprised by how ordinary everybody is. And that in the visitation room, you know, you have sons and daughters and moms visiting with their loved ones, families. And uh, because... For the most part, those are the people that are in prison, people who have families just, and the, the bulk of prison life is just day-to-day -day ordinary life where you get up and you brush your teeth and you have breakfast and you have your job that you do and you just, you, you go through those things that really everybody is going through. And so there is, you know, a, you know the ordinary aspects to life don't disappear because you're in prison. And, and even the beauty that can be found in those uh, ordinary aspects of life still exist in prison. Um, but I, I don't know, I just still, I'm just really reminded of my mom saying this, how ordinary it is and was uh, in those visits. And it's true. And it's just, what's interesting about the visits is that you know, you're allowed to get sodas out of a soda machine or snacks out of the snack machine. And that's, you know, fun and exciting for someone who's doing time because you might not have access to that stuff. But the reality is you're just sitting at a table with your family. That's it. There's no TV. There's no cell phones. There's nothing. There's just an appreciation for the company of the people that care about you and the people that you care about. Um, and so I, I don't think that that's something that people think about when they hear the, the word prison. Uh, and of course there are, there's dangerous people in prison and all, and all of that stuff exists, but that's only one, one small part of the story. Again, thanks so much for sharing all of that. Uh, I'd like to finish it up with one more question. Uh, what's been your favorite part about working with this uh, project Echo and the uh, Peer Education Project? I have truly found and, and been able to achieve redemption. I can never go back and take the heinous crime away. I can't undo that. And so moving forward is all that I can really do and how I decide and how I choose to move forward is is really my restitution back to my community, back to my family, um, back to 16-year-old Carissa. Moving forward in the best light is, is the best way that I can apologize um, for my actions. And peer education, before I was first introduced to it, I was a very hopeless and um, belittled uh, young woman. 
And I could not see past the end of my nose for the first four years. I was just trapped inside of a prison, inside of a prison, inside of a prison. And it was crippling. And I was doing myself, my community, and my family no justice whatsoever. Uh, peer education was introduced, and I was able to take the spotlight off of my pain, off of my dis my disgust for myself, off of my disappointment. And I was able to project the light on my community, on others. And I was able to take the knowledge I was given and give it to them. And I was able to watch how their lives improved because of it. And once I got that feeling, once I got that understanding that this world is not about shining the light on myself, it's really about shining the light on others and trying to help them um, through some of their difficulties. Uh, so I was able to understand that and gravitate towards it because of peer education. My whole life, I did a 180 and it was, it took a while for me to really accept that I was worthy of being able to help somebody else. But once I, again, took the light off myself and really focused on what I was able to do for the benefit of my community and those around me, I was able to find my redemption. And I really don't know if I would have found it any other way had it not been for peer education. So I give my whole recovery, uh, the start of the foundation of my recovery and my redemption to peer education. And I think that that's my favorite part. It's enabled me to become an incredible woman, somebody that I love and I cherish. And that was something once upon a time, I never thought I'd ever, ever be able to say. So for that, I'm, I'm forever indebted and grateful. Thanks so much for sharing. And, and Daniel, can you speak to that as well? In this moment, I'm gonna have to say uh, that it was learning how to have a vision. And that that has worked in multiple ways and all these different layers where it started with the echo trainers who went into the prison to train me to be a peer educator. And they had a vision for how the program was going to work. But not only that, they specifically had a vision for who, for who I could be. And it was someone that I had never believed that I could be. Uh, and so they introduced me to the vision of who I could be. And as I discovered that, I started discovering more and more my value and worth that, that I didn't know. And I continue to. But even bigger than that is that they've, I've learned really through doing this that I can have a vision for others as well. I can have a vision for our program. And we have really the honor to have a director like Dr. Sanjeev Arora and Dr. Thornton who have just massive visions for what they're going to do with the, the ECHO model as a whole in the world. Um, so yeah, the, the vision part has just really been transformative for me on personally, professionally, uh, so many different levels. Awesome. Uh, thank you both so much for coming on the show. And thank you for everything that you're doing. I mean, you're really changing people's lives in health, in prison, but also in letting people live to their full potential. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for having us on again, Lucas. Thank you for listening to another episode of Nuevo Healthcare Network. Subscribe to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and feel free to email comments, questions, and suggestions for future guests 
to Nuevo Healthcare Network at gmail.com. Till next time.